sun and wind gorge on purple flesh, orange, tinted with the rot of Hallow's Eve lost. And as you see, the candy get discounted and the sheets go away. You see the trees lose their leaves and the weather loses play. Do not think lightly that the dead have left the earth. Hey, all you cool ghouls and goblins. Oh, hey, Steph. You interrupted me being a spooky pervert. Yeah, you kind of looked like you were going the direction of, uh, you know, some of our more classic, poetic, um, you know, horror themes. And I just didn't feel like I could let that slide when there's so much good toko we could be discussing right now. Well, that's plenty fair. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. I'm Rose Kip. This is episode 104 of Copyright to Me. And with me is Steph. And we are going to be uh, starting up our book club, looking at Comrade Kiva for the fall season. Absolutely. And I'm so stoked about that. So, Steph, uh, it has been a minute since we finished Comrade uh, uh, uh And we wanted to just kind of uh, resume this here. But uh, hey, before we started up, like, I know you wanted to uh, say some words about everything and just, you know. I did. And I fully want to. Um... Explain my absence uh, partially. Um, I was actually dealing with some pretty serious mental health issues, and I know that a lot of our listeners probably can relate in some way or another. Um, the best thing that I can say at my point right now is just to have faith in the people that you know care about you. Um, I have had to take breaks here and there, you know, just throughout my existence, just because, you know, stuff gets heavy. And there were almost 100% of the time I felt like I had these friends that were not going to be understanding or were going to um, be upset with me for having to take that time away. And my advice to everyone who might be dealing with that is probably just the voices inside your head are the worst thing that you're going to have to deal with. So have faith in your relationships and have faith in the people that care about you because I had a lot of people that I fully expected to not be able to forgive me for having to take that break. Among them was you know, Kip. And I had no reason to think that rationally, but you know, you're you're bad side of your brain is always going to convince you that the people that care about you the most don't care about you at all. Um, and he was one of the people that was 100% waiting just to support me when I was able to come back and speak to people in my circle again. So that's my encouragement to anyone who might be kind of struggling with that goblin brain right now. Take a deep breath kind of try to center yourself however you can and don't be afraid to ask for help because that is the most important thing you can do and the most important thing i can do right now is talk to you guys about how great kiva is because oh my goodness has this series completely hooked me in a way that i was not expecting so fully down for having this discussion right now yeah um and just to all you said, like, all I want to say is I think um, there's maybe a starting skid, a foundational ick to trusting the world around you that a lot of us have because 
we're around other young people when we're young who don't know how to properly and healthily present themselves or talk about things or even process like things and be there for the people or just we haven't curated our life and aren't able to curate our life in a way where maybe there are some people who are going to react negatively in ways they really should not uh, do. And I think that uh, the biggest thing is just, Hey, um, there's uh, your relationships should be about <laughs> your relationships. They shouldn't be about like um, people are in end into themselves. They are not a mean, like it's very easy to be in a transactional brain or whatever. Just remember that you should, and you should, um, should not see people or, uh, feel seen as just a way to do something or to get something. And yeah, um, like, uh, sometimes it's hard to not feel that way be like, Oh no, I've been, shitty when really you've just like had something going on like that happens to everybody you know right and one thing that's kind of helped me i want i don't want to say it's like made me better because i still obviously have doubts about my interpersonal relationships and i feel like that's part of my trauma response you know thank you mom and dad um but one of the biggest things that has kind of helped me sort of keep on the level is realize that for everything that my goblin brain tells me probably most other people's goblin brains are telling them at the same time so you know if you kind of keep in perspective that everybody is kind of messed up in their own way and everybody is kind of like looking for that way to communicate with each other and reach out to other people it might help you empathize a little bit better to realize that, you know, everybody is going through some shit and we're messed up in our own ways. And, you know, honesty, I hate to say it because it sounds like very kindergarten, but, you know, honesty is the best policy when you're going through some tough things. Yeah. Um, and I just uh, do want to say that um, I personally love and it is for me to do things like have a show every week and have an empty like inbox and that kind of stuff. It's not ever anything. Sometimes people see other people's ways of doing stuff and they're like, Oh no, uh, I'm not. So therefore I'm not valid. That's not the case. Like uh, I do want people to know that sometimes you have people like in your life who are like doing stuff. Maybe like you're part of that, like maybe you're not. And Trust me, they don't judge you negatively for like when you might need to like take a step back in a way where you're not in that step and step, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's a really important thing to remember. And even the people who seem like they have it together the most are probably struggling with things on their own also. They just are doing it in a different way. Yeah. Um, I don't talk a lot about certain things for me just because, uh, they don't come up naturally sometimes. Also, there's certain things where I'm like, huh, uh, that takes the breath out of the room. So like, sure, over the course of talking, like stuff like that might come up. But just know that sometimes people aren't even hiding something from you. Sometimes they're just like, oh, man, I'm deeply financially traumatized all the time. Why would it come up now? I'm just vibing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. Um, any final thoughts or do you want to start up with some common writer? Uh, my final thought is just have a lot more faith in people than you probably think that you deserve for them to have. Because 
I'm going to say that 98% of the time you're putting a lot of undue pressure on yourself and the people that actually care about you just see you going through something and don't know how to help. And you're probably like placing a lot of undue expectation on yourself to live up to a standard that they don't have for you. You've probably invented in your own brain. So, you know, give yourself a break. And that's my final thought. Aside from that, hell yeah, let's get into Common Rider. Yeah. Um, the Common Rider, um, the best way in, I guess, is to remember where we've been. I think um, we did a really great in depth look at Common Rider Kipiki across like several um, months and weeks of, I guess, like a little bit of like a post mortem before we start digging that second grave. Uh, what do we leave Hibiki with? Like, what do we feel about like that show and also like Common Rider as like a whole? Um, that was the second Common Rider series that I watched through all the way through, and it was very different from the first one that I watched. And I'm not saying that in a bad way at all. Um, but it had its very own unique storytelling style, and that's something that I've come to notice across the series that we've been watching is something that is very cool about the Common Rider universe is that they all very much stand apart from each other in a very neat way. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to start Kiva because I was like, well, if past experience is anything to go on, this is going to be an entirely different hero, an entire entirely different set of characters that I'm going to fall in love with. And... You know, just the first couple of episodes from this series, it very much proved to be right. Like, there is something very unique about all of these series that we've watched so far that, you know, you just, you find something to relate to and, you know, want to follow along with. Sometimes when you have a thesis on something, it can be kind of like, oh, um... I'm repeating myself all the time, but like I think it's worth repeating, especially when it's been like a couple of weeks and also with the whole, whole um way that we're like starting something new. But I think something very important to think about with Common Rider is um how these shows really engage with um the like kind of like making the role of hero a inherent burden and either like just showing how people are separate from others, how people are uh, presented and like the way that I love, especially in like um, even current common writer, but like you could see it like a little more clearly in like some older shows is there's a very clear way people are being presented with clear law, with clear kind of like difference from like what you might think makes a hero. Um, and that's what the shows really care about. And like, I really do appreciate that. Like looking at, the way that we saw with like um hippie back in that show, just the ways like they made clear, hey, this is the guy who's like kind of like super specialized and away from the world into this like life or death like career path because he like wouldn't fit elsewhere like in this society, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that I've kind of picked up on on this series. And, you know, obviously I don't have the experience that you and even, um, senpai of of having watched a whole bunch of common rider but the thing that i have picked up on just in the three series that we've watched now is it seems like the thing that kind of sets common rider apart is the fact that they always 
well, at least in the series that we've watched, have picked these guys who are, for the most mm-hmm. part, like, if you've looked at them on the street, are just guys. Like, for the most part, there isn't a whole lot that would really set them apart or scream, like, superhero. Um, and that actually makes them more relatable because they have this kind of, like, jovial aspect to their personalities that is like different from what you'd expect from I don't know even if you're watching like MCU like anything from Marvel you're kind of expecting this certain attitude and mentality but these guys kind of like kick that in the face and I really enjoy that aspect of these shows yeah and I really do think that there's something to the fact that it's a constantly changing year to year thing that means we're not just getting different takes on like Tony Stark. We're not we're not just getting like here is a big marquee person. We're getting okay, like both like in the designs and the monsters and the powers, also like in the like actual like writing itself. Like there's like a real drive to okay, let's do something different with the core themes of this whole franchise because this is our year and this is what's been done. This is what we'll do, you know? Yeah, and I really enjoy that also because it introduces this whole um attitude of okay but what if the everyman was the hero and you know between um hibiki and kuga and what we're watching now it seems like that's a very unique way to kind of approach the whole superhero thing is to take these very flawed characters and make them into someone who can save the world, but they're also going to have their own issues to deal with when they get home. Like, as soon as they take off the superhero suit, they still have to deal with these, like, ordinary guy things. And that's what makes it a very relatable type of series to jump into. And um, I do love how the reward in being Common Rider is that you are yourself and you can totally kind of, like... um sharpen your sense of self and your morals and what you find to be true and make relationship with people but it's not like fame fortune sex whatever like there's nobody who's like winning a wife right. the way that like you wouldn't like a terminator movie you know or like a little like transformers movie not like a terminator movie that's a different situation <laughs> but still like you know like they aren't like hero's journey coming back better in like a like material sense like there's something very um david lynch like secret keeper like protagonist which is like a different thing that's not worth actually going to uh that's for you uh martha not just some like fans from college (laughs) and grad school but whatever (laughs) but you're right though and i think that that's what makes shows like this so unique and i think that you really uh you know, it even inadvertently kind of hit on my taste by picking the common writers that you have because these guys are exactly the kind of heroes that I want to watch. Right. I want to watch the uh the Kugas of the world. I want to watch these guys who you fully look at them and you're like, oh, everyday Joe, but they're the ones who, you know, step up and are willing to save the world and don't want recognition for it. Like the last thing they want is extra attention. They literally just want to fight the bad guys, live their day-to-day life, and go on. And that's amazing. You know, that's 
kind of what I want in a superhero is for them to not actually want to be a superhero. So I, it adds such an interesting story dynamic to have this character who is a really big hero, but doesn't really want the recognition from that. They just want to do what they feel is their duty and then go on with their lives and have no other pause from that. And I think that always makes for such an interesting story. I want to move on in a second, but like I, I do want to um, look at two things that you said that I think um, are like uh, technically present in a lot of the kind of like heroes, like protagonists in the stories, like superhero or not, that are also present in like Adam Rider, uh, but like uh, are done so differently. And it's like um, they want to fight like their villains and their bad guys and like their everyman. And I think a lot of like these characters. Are, are like everyday people, but not like I'm an extraordinary at wearing denim. And maybe there's a reference to me fixing a roof like white dude. There's mm-hmm. a different thing going on there. And like, I don't want to completely like discount the cultural difference of like some markers that look like we might not know. But I think um, there's definitely something in like, oh, these are ordinary people. And that the fact that like they're fucking just people who are going through it in a way that a lot of characters aren't allowed to have that like vulnerability or like imperfection in like a lot of like media that we see and also yeah. like they don't just like fight evil like very often like they have to like deal with the evil of their abilities they have to deal with the humanity of their opposition in a way that uh, a lot of um other even deeper genres don't do like a great job of let alone like just playing superheroes, you know? Right. And I definitely have to agree with you on that point. I feel like it's it's a very big thing in Western culture for the hero to always have to have, like, this really big, like, root cause moment. Like, if you've got a superhero that is going through something, whoever it is, and once again, I will use the... Marvel Universe as an example because it's one of the very few franchises I have followed. But it, every hero has like this really big like epiphany moment. And this is, you know, why they became a superhero and why they're doing the things that they do. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I've enjoyed the Common Writer series so much is because it isn't always like this big, like self-referential moment that they decided to become a hero. Maybe it's just because that's all they could do at the time. And that's it. Like, it doesn't have to be this big, we have to have an entire series backstory for it. It's just, you know, you've got a guy who said, Well, you know, I stepped in because it was the right thing to do. And I think that that adds a really dynamic layer to storytelling is to have a hero that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, his entire family was robbed and murdered and set on fire or anything. It was just, you know, this one thing happened and he was like, well, can't do that anymore. And then they go on with their world and to me that almost adds a um a more fun layer to things because it it doesn't have to always be so deep like just the every man stood up at a time that he was expected to and 
that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. Like Common Rider is like very much a um a series about people who are dealing with the world around them but not owning it. They're not the master of it, you know. Exactly. And and that definitely adds something to it that makes it a lot more relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh we should get into this um whole series though cuz we looked at episodes 1 through 8 and how we're going to do this we're going to look at uh them in two episode chunks and take a break so three little uh, interludes and then we'll uh get between them but uh yeah this show has a lot going on um episode 1 of Kamara Kiva is called Fate Wake Up uh and then uh we see that there is a funeral being held for a fancy lad with hair and lots of people are crying uh it's I forget when we find out this might be here, but it's 1986. Uh, there's lots of cool church stained glass stuff and everything. And then he wakes up and has like a stained glass face and starts to attack his guests. Um, so <laughs> I like this as an opening because it's so. It's in your all face. Of the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of my notes because. Um, the other common writers that we've watched, and this isn't a complaint at all, it's something I definitely enjoyed about them, was the fact that they were both really, like, low-key and mellow, and, and I did enjoy that, but this series, like, it takes your face and, like, gut punches it from the second you open to the second you close. Like, it's it's just a very dynamic, exciting series, and it does not let you forget that at any point. So I checked, and the very first thing that the show tells you is 1986. So what do you think about the fact that the show started in the 80s? You're like, like, were you expecting that at all? I was not expecting that. And then when I saw it was 1986, I was like, well, I was three years old then. And I like, I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but there was still a part of me that was like looking around for references that I could identify with, like maybe an abandoned mall, eclairs or something that I could kind of relate to. But yeah, it was it was a very unique setting, but it definitely fed in with the timeline that they were trying to encapsulate. I I do have to give them that. And I think too, like it's a good call because like a, a funeral is the kind of thing where like it doesn't change too drastically in 22 years. So like you could almost tell the differences better because like this show doesn't have it in it to like completely like redo a bunch of like buildings and architecture. So like just showing off like the slight differences in fashion and like hairstyles and and, like makeup, like kind of popped a little bit in this scene. It was like, oh, this is 1986. Like you notice rather than notice like the seams it was like actually like a pretty good like way to do that i think i feel like oh yeah definitely and that was probably one of the things that i enjoyed most about this series just in the episodes that we've watched is the fact that um the fact that they can do those time transitions so seamlessly that you don't even realize you're in a transition until they have told you at some point in the dialogue and i think that's a very cool way to handle the show is to be able to do it so seamlessly that you feel like you're a little bit disoriented from the time jump like that's a sign of a good show to me and i think um something cool about that too is that um the show like um wants to be horror themed it's based off like universal monsters 
and actually like is able to like keep a like fair bit of tension with the way it's switching between timelines and plot lines too that like helps because like it's like technically themed that also there's like a lot going on like it's like not always like that like, every place and i think they're able to keep stakes a little lower and not just go full on here's a bunch of writers doing stuff like super early on because it's like oh this is like covering multiple grounds and like there's also in the 80s there's no common writer right now mm-hmm. i uh, do um wonder if that'll change um and two i think um i did have this thought i was like hmm how do you get a funeral like like that's a big setup to meet enough people to to like get a funeral i feel like how this dude pull it off like i want to know that backstory oh yeah for sure and not only that but the way it was done just so eloquently like it wasn't a funeral where you saw a thousand people gathering outside but you could still tell that it was something that was you know for someone who was prominent and respected and I think that's probably the best thing about this show is how they're able to like capture those moments without having to have a lot of dialogue around it. Like they can just show you that this person was important or this hobby is important or whatever, like whatever it is, it's able to capture like so much emotion with so little dialogue. And that's a really awesome thing for a show to be able to do. What do you think? Maybe it was like a, twilight thing where it's like oh this person every 12 years has a funeral when they're like starting to age out of their like secret identity and just eat people at the funeral yeah and then two years from now he'll be back in high school again like trolling yeah yeah Yeah, i mean uh, i do with my life i don't know uh, (laughs) what do you think about yuri when she showed up because she shows up in a veil and is like talking about like how god has aired then she like throws off her veil and she's in those tight leather pants and i was like huh steph probably has perspective on this one i had a lot of conflicting emotions i will say (laughs) um but i mean the actress herself plays it really phenomenally in a way that is both kind of relatable and vulnerable which is always a nice balance to achieve but it it kind of took a couple of episodes for me to get attached to the main character just because he kind of seemed like a drip for a while. So having the additional characters like her to kind of um, help the storyline along really helped. With that. Yeah. Um, and like her first thing is she fights this like monster and then like, like case we see like the door getting damaged and like the stonework getting damaged. Then we cut to like, um this dude in like a beanie and a mask and like uh that we see it's like 2008 22 years later and he's just this odd figure examining this wood and like we later find out like he's our main character like wataru but just um that whole transition there of like him seeing this and then like the um first opening like popping up because like most shows don't have their opening like in the first episode I really love that. Like, it's a very good what's going on <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't give you an opportunity to not be engaged. Like, there is a very real 
risk of you like getting pulled into this entire storyline because of that. And I enjoy that because it's so non-forceful on the surface. But once you start to kind of dive in and start enjoying the series, then you're like, oh, shit, like I got captured whether I was intending to be or not. What do you think of the opening uh, the first time you saw it and heard it? The first time I heard it, there was a part of my brain that was like, oh, this is very intense. This is like a health party. We need to shut this down. Like somebody called the cops. What is going on here? And but after like I had my couple of rational moments and kind of like settled it all down, I was like, okay, this is very different. Like, you know, with everything that we've kind of examined before, there's always been, like I said before, this kind of like calmness or nostalgia or this that or the other. But then this <laughs> series, like from the second you watch the opening, you have to kind of decide whether you're going to be engaged or not. And at first, I wasn't entirely sure, but probably about 20 seconds in, I was like, okay, hell yeah, we're we're jumping on board with this because there's something very unique about this that we need to figure out what is going on here. And I have not looked back. Like, it's a very, very engaging series. I really like um like this like opening. It's very uh it's very just <laughs> it's of its time in a way. It does not have any pretense. It's just like, okay, let's just go for it. We gotta just have this series lets you know that there's stained glass, there's hot boys, there's rose petals, there's violins. Let's let's go. Uh yeah, for sure. And uh when we get into the episode, um, a lot of this episode is based around just seeing who Ataru is and what he's up to. And basically, at the start, he's this reclusive, like, wearing a mask and, like, a beanie to, like, keep away from, from people guy. Um, he's stealing um, fish and stuff from, like, cats and, like, having, like, um, this girl that hangs out with him, Shizuka, um, get fish from her mom and, like, bring it to him because he's trying to, like make a varnish for like a violin and like his house is always smelly and like his neighbors hate him and call him the ghost boy and yeah um he's very much like set up as this like uh he can't talk like he has like a notepad for talking he's very much like this oh what a little weirdo yeah and i think that for the most part at first i was just like oh well you know he's maybe been through some shit like Maybe people just don't understand this, that, or the other. But, like, as it went on, I was like, actually, he kind of has people in his corner. He's pretty chill. He just needs to embrace the people that care about him. So, but I get it. I mean, you know, sometimes you're in that position where you just feel like you're too over overwhelming for everybody else. So, you don't really expect anybody to be on your side. But it was really neat that, you know, he had all these people in his corner entirely and just didn't realize it just because of how wrapped up in himself he was. Yeah. And a lot of episodes like trying to get like the characters into position too. And there's a lot going on here. A little too much, I think, but um, he has like a, a cool fenced off, like big violin maker's house. We meet this model Megumi who just wants to eat fish of like structure workers at local restaurant and stuff. Um, like he tries to steal her fish bones, but gets caught. Um, we see that Yuri is working at this cafe called Cafe Maldemore, but is scared by like a little dog there. 
and they have like some yearly plates that'll come up later. Uh, and then this dude, the boss, sh- shows up with the most '80s hair wig I've ever seen. Uh, it's just it's incredible. Um, it really is something amazing. And they established that, like him and the owner of the um, like coffee shop have a body fat contest every day where they're like, who's got the lowest body fat? There was actually something about that that stressed me out. <laughs> I I still don't know exactly what it was, but there was something about that that just kind of gave me a little bit of anxiety every time they brought it up. I was like, Jesus Christ, I'd never have that low of body fat. That's probably what it is. This is like a recurring gag at some Kevin Rider shows too. Like the show before this one, Kevin Rider Deno, um, has a gag where like, there's a bunch of like train conductors who are trying to see who's the best at eating the most rice without a flag falling down uh, like in their rice. And like that's like their big game that they play with each other when oh like my. other stuff's going on. And like they're like aware of like common rider shit, but they're much more concerned about their rice flag records. But uh, yeah, um, this is also the point where uh, the boss talks to Yuri about uh, the Stark the um, stock market bubble in Japan and how it's being used as a cover for this dude who owns this company to eat his secretaries. And he's a fangire, which um, I thought that was interesting. The show is actually doing a lot with like stock market bubbles and like what's going on. I think like it has both like a historical perspective on like culture, but also like people. Yeah, that's definitely something that they do well. And I I would definitely say that from whatever perspective you're looking at it from, whether it's like from, you know, entertainment or artistic, him being like a violin maker and player and, and this, that, and the other. But there's definitely something for every aspect of your personality to kind of realize that in one way or another, everybody is kind of being exploited by the system. So you have to kind of decide how you're going to address that moving forward and that's something that i feel like a lot of the common writer series do well is doing that kind of introspection in a non very you know judgmental or like raising people up for the revolution and type of way just kind of putting the truth in front of you and letting you decide how you're going to react to it I think there's something to the way this kind of allusion to like real events and like stuff comes up a little bit later. I have like more specific notes to it, but um, I think there's something there, how it matches their themes pretty well. But um, we do get the plates transition from 1986 to like 2008 uh, to where Megumi is in the same cafe with the same dog. He's, somehow only got 10 years older in those 22 years. Uh, and she is berating with Like, just like, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And like, he can't talk. He has his notepad. And she tries to like take his mask off and like his notepad falls down. And on the notepad, it says, please, somebody stop her. Um, and then she takes like his mask off and is like, oh, you're really cute. And then he's like, wait, I'm not allergic to people. <laughs> And like it's kind of like an interesting moment, honestly, because he's very much like, "Oh, whoa, what?" Like she doesn't maybe like realize what she's done to his life at that point, but he's very much like, "Wait, what?" 
Yeah, and that's something I enjoyed, too, because the actor himself had such a great, like, genuine surprise reaction to that whole thing. And I wasn't expecting that. Like, I fully expected this very overly dramatic, like, kid flinging themselves on the floor reaction. But he did act like someone who was in that situation would have acted like, oh, God, I actually can breathe without the mask. What's happening here? So I felt like that entire couple of scenes was done in a way that I would have never expected from actors so young in the way that they played it that was so honest. Yeah, he's a very pouty dude. Like, there's a point where he's pouty. I'm like, I know that like you're like a new actor who's like 18 or 17 or whatever, but like you're pouting with the biggest lips. You're acting all surprised and like you're acting so innocent. Like, he's very good in this role and they know exactly what they want from him. Like, probably because they cast like the most like (laughs) shy looking dude they could. Like, he is like shyness personified. Right. uh, Yeah. um, He's like actually like very good at um, just being this like sad, pouty, shy person. Like, there's this point later on this episode where he's in the bath with like Kivat, and he's like, "I guess if I can breathe dirty human air, then I'm like a dirty human too." And Kivat just says, "Idiot!" Just calls him an idiot. Kivat was probably one of my favorite parts of these episodes, just because he was like the. Jiminy Cricket of the series. Like, he yeah, was great. the one that was telling you, you know what? Quit being a fucking jackass. So, we switch back to the 80s where the president is like being predatory to his secretary, except it's because he's a monster, not the other kind of monster. And then, like, Yuri just shows up on a bike and beats his car up with the bike. It's kind of great. <laughs> um, and then, uh, he turns into a like Fangire and fights her. And he's like a blue horse with a mouth that poses and everything. And it looks like really weird. It's like kind of great. Um, but like their fight goes a little sideways uh, when he calls his security and the secretary runs away. So he like drops his transformation. So he's just like a dude. And then like a bunch of his like rent a cop, like security guards, like are just like, oh, president, come and like, try to take her out, <laughs> which is really great. It was. I will say that as far as like um, setups for those really great, I don't want to call them gag shots because I know that that's not what they are, but for those very entertaining shots, that's something that this series does well. I mean, it's not afraid to laugh at itself, and that's something that I always appreciate in a good uh, TV series. The way she escapes is that she... um does the thing they always do in fiction where like she rounds a corner and just starts like make it out or like this case like hugging this dude and then the guards are like hmm nobody could make out that sudden I've got this 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 isn't my person despite the fact that she's like in the same tight leather shorts but I guess it's the 80s so who's not in those um truly and yeah um then we meet another major character in the show who is Hotoyo and I, and we find out later in the episode, he is Wataru's dad, uh, who is a famous violinist and violin maker who might have made a pact of a demon. Uh, but he's just a lot immediately. Uh, yeah. You immediately see why his son cannot match that violin color because you're just like, yeah, of course that dude had to be as 
fucking extra as possible. Yes. Um, he's very extra. And like, I think people, people don't like characters who aren't as extra as possible. And I think a lot of people look at him and they're like, oh, he's always the main character. He's more outgoing. It's like, no, Wataru is still the main character of this show. There's a reason that his dad is so much and that like characters later, like Nago are so much. It's like to make a point about like what is valuable in a person, what is important to know, how people can grow. And I think, um, fuck, this dude like is beloved by the fandom and like, I get it. I love him, but also it's like, ooh, sheesh. Just like a lot of him right. immediately at right. the start of that arc, you know? Yeah. We see he like tries to grab her hand and say, hey, uh, life is short, but the night is long. And then she just like takes great satisfaction and like wrenching his arm and like pushing him away. But the uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm putting you on our creepy PMs. I'm done with this shit. Uh, we see that the secretary gets got right before Yuri shows up. But then Atoya interrupts again and we see that he has a violin case. Uh and then we uh, switch back to the 2000s, and uh, Megumi is getting interviewed by a fashion icon, but it's the same Van, that same Van Geyer. Um, and um, he like goes from being a male model getting praised in like the next scene they're in to like he has all of the people leave, and a curtain covers them, and it's like, well, this seems oddly realistic. Besides, like the monster part, I guess, but. Uh, and then he like turns into a monster to attack her. But then like uh, the big reveal is that she also has a weapon <laughs> and is fighting him and stuff. Uh, and yeah, um, sh- she says like the same thing that like Yuri did, but she like can't beat a monster like on her own. So the violin that Watara has been trying to make the varnish for like Bloody Rose um, starts to like Play like a single note that lets him know there's a, a, a like finger out there. So he goes and he transforms and it has a fight. And uh, what do you think of our first look transformation suit? Uh, just the fight of Comrade Akiva. I was very surprised. I, I will say that it was um, not that our other common writers in their first fights have been very um, super glamorous or anything, but this one, excuse me, seemed very um low key in a way that I wasn't expecting but I still enjoyed it there wasn't anything bad about it I just because there had been a little bit more flashiness leading up to that first fight I was maybe expecting like something kind of power rangers big but the way that it was done wasn't bad it was just different from what I kind of had in my head the big like spot of their fight is that he dodges a car that's falling towards him. Like it's not that like big a deal, but like I like how they do his character too. Where it's like, Oh, he's like fights upside down. His belt can bite and block a sword attack. It's like very much like, Oh, he's just like a very acrobatic fighter. And this is just something that like he can do. Um, when he like, does his kick his like chained leg gets unchained and he like destroys with the emblem then a skyscraper turns into a dragon it comes eats the soul of the monster and that's one of those things where like huh probably gonna save that for next time just to not overload people but um yeah um he then gets 
attacked a Megumi who's like, Kiva, that motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. And um, that's that first episode. Um, any thoughts before we really finish off this like, starting arc? Or? I can't think of anything. I, I think I've kind of been interjecting my thoughts for better or worse as we spoke. So Yeah. Uh, episode two. Sweet. Father and son violin. So Megumi uh, does not successfully attack and kill Kamarada Kiva in the first episode. Um, he walks away, but apparently he's an enemy because her boss is very upset and says, don't tell Nago. Nago will want to slay him. Um, we see uh, Wataru's making some more varnish, but it's not good enough. So he tosses the whole violin away and he talks to Shizuka about his dad and how he was so good at stuff. Um, she got a repair order for him, which he doesn't want to do, but then he, he sees like how nice the violin is, so he's like, okay. Um, and we get to the 80s where there's a fangar that only targets female violinists. Seems very ominous. Uh, and then Yuri goes to be a manager for a like female violinist who is in danger. And then that dude's there. And Toya is her teacher. He was a famous violinist, but he suddenly stopped. Um, and yeah, um, that's that tension there. But then we see that Wataru is a fucking menace. <laughs> he tries to saw a noodle shop side down. <laughs> Just like with a saw out in public. <laughs> but gets caught. Um, we see that uh, Miss Tomi is missing, but Hotoya just wants to make out with Yuri. Uh, and we see that uh, Wataru uh, wants the table outside of the cafe. He's like, oh, it's so smooth. He starts like touching it and rubbing it, put his face on it. But gets stopped by Megumi, uh, who then berates him for being shy and not ambitious. So Sh- Shizuka cries to like, get out of it. And uh, Wataru asks the uh, owner of the shop for the table. And then we go back to the 80s for a really dope fight scene in a fountain where we see that Hitomi is a... Uh, playing violin and this jogger is like oh what's this is this like pretty lady playing violin and magic i'm gonna get closer this can't go badly uh, <laughs> yeah, and then like feel yeah. wrong for me i mean i would probably like get close enough to be killed by a monster if there's like somebody playing violin in a fountain i'd be like oh, what's going on yeah i can't say that i wouldn't either i have a really uh bad weakness for a good violin solo so i would absolutely be attacked by the monster i i have no reservations about that whatsoever yeah and um especially when it's uh the first of our returning cast midori from comrade hibiki is the violinist and my god does she do it well yeah she looks great here um i have some thoughts I'll wait till we finish this episode. But uh, just this whole fight scene at the fountain is very good because, like, there's people like floundering, Yuri's being Yuri, and she gets all wet. And it's like, oh my God, this is a lot of stuff for the fans. Um, and yeah, um, it gets interrupted by uh, Audia, who sees like the monster kill the jogger. It's like, oh, okay, I guess she's a monster. But uh, her violin gets that damage that we see in 2008 and the scene kind of ends with um he basically uh goes to like not grope i guess but like hug yuri but in a way that like he can sneakily take her weapon and go fight the monster himself 
And it's like, okay, sure. Uh, I guess it's the 80s. We were all wearing lots of clothes and good at fighting with like chain swords back then. And yeah, um, then we get to the uh, 2000s as the violin has been fixed and Hotaru has a very nice bath. He's like, ah, oh, she's great. And then Kivat's like, she's not human. And then Hotaru's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all been there. Yeah. Who has it? The amount of times I've had to tell my rubber ducky to shut the fuck up when I thought that a violinist was hot is too damn high. Then Megumi gets attacked and Wataru and the violinist are both doing violin solos at the same time synced up. But then Bloody Rose's string goes off and it lets Wataru know there's a like, um, finger, but also, um, resonates with her violin and like stops her enough that Megumi can get her bearings and not just get like killed, but she's still like about to be killed when Kiva shows up and like Kiva's like, you're so naive, Wataru. And then they fight as like a big whole scene. Uh there's a motorcycle, there's everything. And yeah, um that's these first two episodes though. And we get a brief glimpse too of the uh three boys playing chess and our second alumni from Comrade Hibiki, which is Zanki as Jiro. And yeah, um, what do you think of these first two episodes? And what do you think of our two returning cast members from last season? I do have to say that having the recurring cast members while they were doing their flashbacks and their um, scenes to kind of connect it to the current world was a really interesting dynamic. Like, I I thought it was really cool the way that they kind of pulled all of that together in a way that didn't feel unnatural. And I f- think that's a difficult thing to do when you're dealing with a series that has, like, these recurring cast members that, you know, you could almost place them in any kind of dynamic that you wanted, but they still put everybody into the cast in a way that felt very natural and flowed with the show in a way that you wanted to still engage with it. And I thought that was important. Yeah. The show is doing so much. Uh, it has so many things on the burner and I think it does a very good job at it. Uh, there's a lot of like, it's introducing two casts with two plots and it's has like returning people too, and like trying to like, weave them in also like how do you weave in people who are going to be active in um a plot line but also like be a supporting role in like another plot line because like we see characters for example in, in like 2008 that are like uh in roles that make no sense with the role they're in in like 1986 you know right. there's a lot going on here um i really do um this show does not look like it takes like it was filmed only three years after Common Rider Hibiki. Like they changed the cameras up, the effects are different, the lighting's different. Part of that's it's not indoors and they have like more traditional like suit designs, like there's more color, but holy crap, like the changes in production are wild in those three years, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But once again, it with this series, it feels like it was done in such a comfortable way 
that you don't feel like you got the rug swept out from underneath you. And I think that that's different from the aspect that a lot of shows have. So it was really interesting, especially in my part, to feel like an outsider. To look at that going in and be like, okay, well, these are people that I already feel comfortable with and, you know, I kind of want them on my team. So to have that aspect in this new series was very neat because it didn't feel like it was coming out of left field. And I don't know that a lot of series can do that as well. Two things I want to call attention to. Uh, One is that... um, in Hibiki, you're seeing a character in their 30s and a character in their teens. I do think it, that was so interesting, like considering like how we're seeing a character in their late teens, like early 20s, and like the halfway, but like full way, some of those like same arcs go. Cause it's like, oh yeah, like it was trying to be like fully in one direction for these two characters to like contrast like your normal like 20 year old like protagonist. But like, I do love just how much of everything persists as problems as like concerns and that like different framing here. Um, and also uh, Sh- Shizuka in this show is 14. She's the same age as the main character to come writer Hibiki, like as like Akira as like, um, as like Asamu. And you wouldn't think it immediately. Like you'd be like, Oh, she's so young, but like, just like the framing of the show, it's like a very, We'll be like, oh, wait, wow. A lot can change between series, between years, between like focuses, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's something that probably a lot of people unintentionally overlook, but that is a very big part of that, um, you know, kind of transition into adulthood is realizing that there are, you know, parts of things that you might have overlooked before. And you probably need to give them a second look now. And that's something that 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 this series is very good about is making you kind of second guess your judgments about certain characters and aspects until you get the opportunity to kind of look at them on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, I really want to get into the rest of the episodes, but first I have a little interlude for you. Uh, so Bring I made out. these a little while ago, so I forget some of these. But my question for you, Steph, is um, w- would you like to hear about um, 1986 or 2008? 1986, please. Okay. I collected uh, world event news, um, popular movies, and popular music for America and Japan in 1986 and 2008. Uh and now here are the focuses from the start of the year to mid-March. So when these eight episodes cover. But uh, in, in 1986, January 20th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is celebrated as a federal holiday for the first time. January 23rd, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducts its first members. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Ray Charles, Fats Domino, Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Elvis Presley. Uh, February 21st, The Legend of Zelda first game was released on Japan on the Famicom. February 27th, the United States Senate allows debates to be televised for the first time. Uh, and on uh, March 15th, uh, the Hotel New World disaster in 
Singapore where thirty where uh, thirty three people die when Hotel New World collapses, and that is the news and current events of just uh that first couple months, like the notable things that happened. And uh, what I do want to get into now, though, is uh, <laughs> the music of those first three months of uh, 1986. Oh, man. It's going to be like we're playing, uh, what is that, the Grand Theft Auto game uh, with the 1980s? Vice City? Yes. Yeah, it's going to be like we're playing Vice City. If you had to guess what the number one songs were for the first two and a half months of uh, 1986 in America were, what would be your like one or two guesses? I would say uh, probably The Cars, Drive, and um, what are you going to say? Addicted to Love, maybe, by Robert Palmer. Say You Say Me by Lionel Richie. Oh, wow. That's What Friends Are For by Dion and Friends. Hmm. How Will I Know by Whitney Houston. Oh, good one. Yeah. Irie by Mr. Mister. And Sarah by Starship were the number one songs in that uh, eight-week period. Uh, Japan's a little harder to tell because of the way their charts go, but I'll just say that the song of the year was Desire by Hakina Nakamori from the 28th Japan Record Awards in 1986. Uh, and this leads to perhaps my favorite of this. Um, what do you think were the most popular movies in the first three months of 1986 in America? 86. Okay. Um have to remember i was only about four years old at the time um so i'm really going on muscle memory here um robocop and like die hard pretty in pink and top gun were the most popular movies in america at this time okay wow yeah i was way off top gun would go on to be the pg movie of the year uh and now i got some fucking weird deep lore that i didn't expect to find but uh in Japan, I could only find the top one of the top movies of 1986. The top, as far as I could tell, might be wrong there. Uh, it was called The Adventures of Chatran. Mm. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to read you the synopsis of The Adventures of Chatran, okay? Please. Um, and then um, the film opens on Nippon Farm with a cat named Moth Airy, who has given birth to kittens. One of the kittens is named Milo, has a habit of being too curious to get himself in trouble. He finds a pug puppy named Otis, um, and they soon become friends. And then they get lost in the woods and like drift together. Milo and Otis was just a redubbing of a Japanese movie, which I find very wild. <laughs> uh, but I guess if the movie was just a bunch of people talking over footage of animals, they just did it again. Which I find very funny. Makes perfect sense. Do you want to know what also came out in 1986? Ooh, what came out in 1986? A song by Eddie Murphy called Party All the Time. And it made it up to, uh, I want to say, number seven on the singles charts. Um, was written and produced by Rick James. And mm-hmm. it was... Um, made as a $100,000 bet between him and Richard Pryor wagering on whether Murphy had singing talent or not and actually went on to become something that 
Eddie Murphy could brag about in the future. I think uh, my favorite lyric of that song is uh, cocaine's a hell of a drug. And you know that had to have been written by Rick James. I'm Rick James! My girl likes to party all the time, party all the time. But no, uh, yeah, that's the classic song. Um, I can't not think of that Chappelle show sketch with that one, though. And there's oh, something about changes. 80s music that 100% lent itself to that. Just to having like yeah. these random celebrities pop in and be like, oh yeah, I endorse this. Like, I mean, if you were in the 80s, you could sing a song and just, you know, Olivia Newton-John would pop out like she was the uh, devil or angel on your shoulder and be like, hell yeah, I endorse this. Let's go with it. That, that was the 80s for you right there. I just made myself sad, I think, by thinking about the Chappelle show because Fuck, there was a time in my life where Chappelle was my favorite comedian and fucking now he's just a real piece of shit. (laughs) And that sucks. But no, uh, with that, though, uh, we will at a later segment get back to uh, what's going on in 2008 for that same points. But for now, let's look at episodes uh, three and four of Garmart Akiva, this next little arc. Episode three of Kamara Kiva is heroic, perfect hunter. I want to pare down my summaries a little bit, but um, Megumi tries to be the one to hunt down Kiva, but isn't allowed to be the person. Uh, Wataru attempts to thank the cafe for the, the table and meets the dog who likes him. He is proud of what his mom told him of his dad. And then we see his dad steal a girl from a guy and then another one, and then go right to Yuri, and then a Fangire shows up, and they fight the Fangire. Uh, and then we see um, that the um, org wants to um, recruit him at the same time as Ataru is learning of his crimes. He meets a bunch of um, old men and hears how they were wronged by his father. Uh, and we also see a bounty hunter named Nago, who beats the crap out of this German dude who's trying to eat some sausages and do crime, and takes his buttons. And Wataru literally just fucking says, hey, uh, he should be my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and the fan guy who 22 years ago shows up. And that's episode three of Kavarati Kiva. Uh, I fucking love this episode. It starts with um, w- w- Wataru having to, like, he can't say no to a newspaper subscription. Shizuka shows up and says, hey, you have five of these already. You can't get another one. Um, <laughs> and there's also way more talk about like the Stark market cr- crash and the bubble and all of that, you know? Right. But yeah, um, this is a what do you think of Nago when he showed up? I <laughs> that was complicated. I could see um, where the character was coming from. A lot of the time, but also, you know, when you're watching shows like this, whether you want to or not, you kind of get drawn into the main character's perspective. Um, So even though there were a lot of things that I disagreed with about the main character, I could understand, like, the issue of having people around that were trying to, like, improve and trying to like force him to see a different perspective but i don't know to me it didn't take away from what everybody else was trying to like feed into him either like i it was one of those situations where i very much 
understood each aspect of the flavoring that was trying to go in there. But, you know, as someone who was watching it, obviously rooting for the main character, I was just like, don't fucking tell him what to do. Fucking rebel yell. You know, we're we're punk rockers here. We're not allowing this. But, you know, from an adult perspective, yeah, I get it. Um, But the show handled it in such a really great way that you didn't really feel like you were deprived of anything. Like, you got the other perspective, but you also got to see how the character reacted to it and, like, kind of embraced the world in his own way. And I thought that was a very neat thing to show, especially in a show where, you know, people are actually being affected by the decisions that the protagonist makes. I think that it's very intentional how strong the personalities that Wataru is contrasted to are. You see this dude who basically, like, we find out later, like, um, drove his father to suicide with how committed he was to ideals with no wiggle room. Mm -hmm. So it's just the kind of thing where it's like, okay, like, uh, you are presenting that your main character, Kamarada Kiva, is this person who is completely shy, completely, completely like malleable, uh, only like he doesn't have like a belief system in the same way. A lot of cover writers do. He has like something he wants to achieve. And I think that's very important to be like, okay, he, this is like a show that cares about like, uh, if not like the way we normally talk about it, like to some degree, like toxic masculinity mm-hmm. too, where it's like, okay, you do not show up a bounty hunter who drove his dad to suicide, who a shy uh, monster imprints on to be a new dad because he finds out his dad isn't perfect without caring about the fact that this show is also technically for four-year-olds sometimes. That's the weird thing about like a writer. Sometimes you're like, oh yeah, I get (laughs) how much of this are the four-year-olds getting? Right, because there's a lot going on here. Even if you're not examining things with a media crit eye, it's like, well, I guess they're just like this is for everybody. Hopefully, the toys fit the kids. But also, here's us talking about the stock market. Here's us kind of like, I think too, like, uh, there's a point where it makes a little bit more sense. So I'm gonna keep putting that point down a little bit. But yeah, um, yeah. But then you also have to get into the point and and not to get too deep on it, but just. You know, if you're looking at it through this lens of, you know, Common Rider is, you know, for all intents and purposes, meant to be a show for kids, like, where do you draw that line? Because if you're watching it as someone like us who are a little bit, you know, older, more set in their ways and already have kind of an established lifeline, at what point do you kind of draw that line and say, you know, I can relate to this, but this is technically supposed to be for children as opposed to I can relate to this. I can see exactly where this protagonist is coming from and I can kind of relate it to my own trauma. And, you know, maybe kids shouldn't be watching this because there there's a lot of issues here. Like, I find that, and I'm not necessarily just pinning this all on Common Writer. Like, I, I have the same issue, like, watching TV shows with my daughter, because every once in a while she'll watch something and, and something will pop up, and I'm like, that hits a little too close to home. 
it just, it makes it kind of difficult when you're an adult to kind of draw those lines when you're seeing something that you can relate to kind of touch on these issues that you've been like struggling with yourself. So I don't know. It just, it makes a really difficult transition to this is actually a children's show and I'm taking it way too seriously. Yeah. I think that, um, a lot of the most popular media, star Wars, like DC Marvel, it's technically for four-year-olds, too. It's just, like, this weird situation where, like, I think I was kind of like, wow, the way this is, like, juxtaposing this, like, super strong-willed dude and also the person's actual father to who he is, and then also, like, doing this very interesting, like, long-form character arc, but also still technically the show has to, like, appeal to, like, kids. It's like I was watching a more recent kind of murder show where, like, it's become like a little more homogenized and like brighter, but still the same shit still happening. Like they're still like, okay, let's tell a great story. And I guess like sometimes with this stuff, it's like, okay, let's tell a great story. Um, and we'll make sure that the stuff people use to like deal with toxic masculinity looks really cool to toy store. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, you know what? That's great. I love that shit. That's right. Whatever works. I mean, honestly, and and that's something that I I have found myself kind of dealing with once again, having a child. But, you know, like I said before, we watch a lot of like MCU stuff. And my favorite thing in the world is Captain Marvel. Love Brie Larson. Love her interpretation of that character. Love everything she's done with it since. But one of the big things about that is she had a lot of her own like mental illness shit to deal with to be able to get to where she was and i i think that that's one of the reasons that my daughter and i can watch it together is because if you have a show that's well written enough it can appeal to all age groups and you can find something to identify with and that's something that common writer shows do really well is finding a way to like bridge that gap between this is just entertaining enough for a child to watch and like, hell yeah, the good guys are beating the bad guys or beating down the monsters. But for older people, they're like, oh, they're going through some adult shit. Like I can relate to that. And I think that's why I enjoy the series so much. Every one of them that we've watched is because they have so much relatability built into the whole like character concept. And one thing I think um, of whenever this this conversation comes up is that is why it's very important to like be active in support of media that is all ages or like technically for children because like there's a massive cultural war riff whatever you want to say towards like hey make sure that like if kids could see this it doesn't have anything undesirable in it it's like no fuck you like kids can handle seeing like two dads kiss kids could handle mm-hmm. mature character themes kids could handle like um a fucking cartoon about dinosaurs that's like actually anti-fascist and like well written like you know like it's like right there's a big like thing of hey we shouldn't have any content in kids media but if you look at like all of the most popular tentpole kids media it's all like super like hey we should probably fight fascist star wars hey um, isn't it dark to be any kind of empowered? 
right. it's Kamen Rider. Like, you know, it's just like, hey, isn't it like really cool that Superman started out beating up a bunch of like factory owners, you know? Yeah, and, and I completely agree with you. And that's one thing that I've kind of always said to people is kids can handle a lot more mature content than most people give them credit for. And adults can handle a lot more lowbrow content than most people give them credit for. Like, there are a lot more places to meet in the middle than most people realize. And I think, honestly, if more people would watch, like, common writer shows, they'd probably realize that. Like, these shows are perfect for being that intermediary. Like, I don't even think, yeah. No, it's, they, these shows always have these overarching themes that you can relate to no matter your age group. And I think, that's an important thing. It's something that a lot of shows don't have anymore. Yeah. And like the point I was trying to make is like, um, I don't think that like these shows are like necessarily like lowbrow. I think they're just like written and have characters and arcs and themes. And I think like a major cultural war point has been like, don't have characters, arcs and themes that will go against the status quo that will have people questioning. It's like, Hey, how come your uh, stained glass monsters are making my child question of like structural issues? Like, you know, it's like, well, yeah, that's what stories do. And I think like there's a big movement to remove stories from anything that isn't super digestible, like colors and shapes and like trust police. And yeah, fuck that. That's that's very much there that. um Man, I hate to go all Reddit on it, but it's very much a Karen thing to be like, how dare you make my child critically think? That's not acceptable. That's not what we do in this house. We do exactly what the specific religious text tells us to do. And I don't know. I, I feel like you're starting to get into the weeds with things like that. But and I, I hate to be like this because I kind of sound like Karen myself, but as a parent, I will just say that I've always tried to encourage my child to free think and to research things on her own. And I realize that not all parents are that way, but I think it's important for them to kind of figure out shit for themselves. And the second you try to make them digest your ideals, the second you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And I think, like, that's another part of, like, the cultural war to be like, hey, let's file off characters and themes from, like, this media is like, oh, I don't want to have to have anything I believe or transpose or have taught uh, my child be, like, tested. And, like, a good parent's like, oh, yeah, it's good that my child uh, came to me with a concern or with their own view on something versus, like, there's a lot of people who just want their their children to only consume media that makes them a consumer of their beliefs already. And that's not healthy. I I absolutely know that. Um, My child's father is an extremely religious dude and older than me, but he has this very set standard of beliefs about how he should be, how she should be, how, you know, and it's all based loosely on his interpretation of the bible and this that and the other and there have been a couple times he's like tried to lecture me and i've just been like well i don't tell her what to do in your house so can't tell her what to do in mine i guess that's only fair um and i feel like 
sometimes the best thing you can do is just give your kids the option like I have with mine and just been like, well, this is what he thinks. This is what I think. And, you know, you figure it out. I'm going to let you explore. So I don't know. I I can't tell anybody how to raise their kids, but that's just kind of what I've done with mine is just, you know, explore the world, figure it out, and I'll answer questions if you have them. That's the best thing I can do. Yeah, and that's uh, real. That's, oh, hey, I have a relationship with my beliefs, and you have a relationship with your beliefs, and we're two people that respect each other, and that's, uh, oddly enough, uh, that's not on a lot of parents' lists of things, but uh, we talk about that forever, I think. Uh, yeah, um, I loved seeing Wataru dealing with his dad being a piece of shit. I did too, just I because I wasn't expecting it. I was fully expecting like this really like syrupy, um, very it's very early in the show story. too. Yeah, <laughs> and for them to not only bring that conflict up early, but to represent it in such a real fashion was so great. And that's one of the things that I love about these series is they always do things in a very relatable way. Uh, and that brings episode four, Reverie, Wild Blue. Uh, Wataru is sad about his dad, but decides to go to the cafe to learn about being a man from Nago. Nago wants permission to kill Kiva from his boss. <laughs> uh, and when they're getting lunch or tea, I think the boys talk, and Nago apprehends a criminal who happened to know Wataru's dad because he's looking for somebody who has like one positive thing. Because this lady showed up and was like, unless you can find one person that liked your dad. <laughs> he's a sh- he's bad I don't know but um and the dude planned a major concert Judah Otoya who no showed um and Wataru's trying to like repent and the old dudes forgive him um and then he finds out that the lawyer was like not just was the moth fan guy or who like attacked cause like she just got like grabbed by Otoya in that scene from last episode where he grabbed two women and was like, oh, hey, Yuri. I was like super upset about it, uh, which fair. So he can't like bring himself to kill her, which is wh- where uh, he calls in like Jiro and uh, sh- shows off his uh, Kururu form, which is a werewolf themed blue sword form, which is cool as hell. It was very d and I, I enjoyed that. And yeah, um, I love the way the old men forgive him too. They're like, yeah, the stock market crashed. Nothing I was real. I had good times. It was good that he paid for things with violin. Just very silly episodes. Like he's at casinos and playing stuff to like get free like drinks and like chips and stuff. I I liked that because it reminded me of like the stories that my grandfather used to tell about so my grandfather was a raging alcoholic and was a member of his local VFW, which was this tiny little bar that had like six people. But the way that he used to get free drinks was he would recite Edgar Allan Poe po- poems like in full. He could only do it when he was drunk, had no absolute recollection of it when he was sober. But that's why I enjoyed this episode so much, because I kind of related it to my granddad being able to just walk into a bar fucking shit face drunk and be able to recite the Raven word for word and not like think twice about it. But he couldn't do it when he was sober. He knew nothing about Edgar Allan Poe when he had not a drink in him. It was just the silliest thing ever. And that very much gave me like this my granddad feeling over it. 
I think there's something double barreled to the momentum that the past characters get, like especially like Otoya, by the fact that the format of the show is that look at these people in the past. Like normally there's like a momentum of, oh, this character is going to linearly go through time and grow and evolve. But because it's like this character we know did that and we're seeing them do it, it actually works that he's kind of this like aloof shitbag in a way where it's like, okay, this show is like simultaneously not about that, but about that even more, you know? Uh, where it's like a little easier to process, I guess, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love how like um the wound that Hotoya gets is uh from someone he, he harassed uh versus Wataru's being self inflicted. That says all you need to say about their characters, right there. Um, and like I think um, have you heard of the concept of um herbivore men? No, another. A thing that I missed. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so no. When I've told you about that uh, trending topic on Twitter, I was like, "Oh, like Sigma male." The reason it was a picture of John Wick was because fucking Red Pill, Blue Pill was also Keanu Reeves back in the day, and I didn't put that together until like weeks ago. <laughs> oh shit! See, and it, anytime I hear anything about that, I'm just like. I have to ask Kip. Like, I'm so uncertain about all these, like, internet meme things. I, I have no clue. But, um, herbivore male is like a Japanese sociological term that was like, this person said, hey, there's a bunch of herbivore males. And, like, the main thing is that, um, they aren't rude or sexually aggressive or, like, forward in their relationships with women. And they're kind of, much more shy they aren't like focused on like getting a wife or like a job or whatever and that became like a thing where i was like what the sociologist was trying to say is here's just a word for this group of the population and people took it to be like fucking millennials um but but like this is a point where like what i keep like alluding to like wanting to like talk about like the stock market like crashes like here where it's like okay um this is the time that there is a lost generation in Japan of people who are just left behind mm-hmm. economically and culturally. There's a lot of people who don't enter the workforce, who don't get married, who don't care. There's like a falling birth rate. Um, and the like, it's just like, instead of like looking at the factors that make it so people don't feel like they're comfortable or that they fit into society it became like, a, oh, fuck these dudes who are living a different lifestyle. And like, it's not even like, fuck these dudes, like they're incels. Like, it's not the best to be super shy and not engage with people, but it's better than like blaming other people for it, like inherently. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when you compare it to everything we hear about the stock market as the character who is the most of the 80s of that time, being Wataru's dad, who is just utterly he is a stock like a like he is a stock market bubble of a person you know he is all bluster he has all things happening he is all trying things in relationships with no substance with no security just as big as he can and like i love the way it's like here is this person who represents like everything people say they want 
and like is tied to the utter destruction and like hollowness of that like once that pops mm-hmm. and then here's this person who's this lost generation like derided like cultural stereotype who's like a good person basically right uh so yeah um and i think that's cool because you wouldn't expect like uh <laughs> mainstream show to be like hey actually it's fine to be shy and not want a career in 2008 you know but they did it yeah and that's definitely something unique especially considering how a lot of eastern countries are struggling right now with their male to female ratios and you know kind of how their future is looking but i can also understand that being like tied into economic policy also that's i mean if you're looking at the current state of the stock market, the job market, like all these things that we have stacked against us, why in God's name would you want to start a family? I completely yeah. understand that mindset. Like, I, obviously, I've done it. I have a wife and child and and am kind of trying to bounce along the American dream. But, you know, I understand looking at the current state of affairs in the world and being like, fuck that. Like, there genuinely is a part of me that would question everything also. So, yeah, yeah. I know where this show is coming from. I think it's smart to pair an 80s ideal of masculinity to a fucking asshole who's constantly getting <laughs> his comeuppance and also pair that to in 80s idea of economy that ended up just like bursting and hurting tons of people and like being a net negative and right it's very smart uh to have that kind of like comparison to be also here's this 2000s person who is well-meaning but hated it's like okay yeah yeah um but no um i like episodes too um but i have a little something special for you steph um oh lay it on me you choose to accept it um on our outline, come back to me episode 104. Uh, after episode four, there is interlude two. There should be a link there if you want to open that. Sure, sure. Welcome to Cafe Maldemore. Uh, and what I have for you, Steph, is I have some Comrade Kiva themed Jeopardy for you. Oh, God. So there are three categories. Coffee Big Break, Name That Tune, and Cardinal Sins. Okay. Uh, and they're from 100 to 400. So, Steph, I have to ask, uh, what is your first category and uh, amount? Oh, shit. I accidentally... Uh, sorry. Um, let's go with Name That Tune 300. Name That Tune for 300. Mm-hmm. Um, restlessly adjusting something is also this other name for the violin. Oh, shit. Do, 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 do. It doesn't tell do, me how to answer. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Do what's your answer, Steph? Um, dude, I don't know. Uh, Bad Romance by Lady Gaga. All right, that would be. Oh damn it! A I... fiddle. Okay, Steph. What is your second? Your second category. Uh, there's one person. I'm not gonna have you get negative points. I'm just gonna have you get positive points or none. <laughs> That's his more fun. Uh, but no. Uh, Cardinal sins for a hundred. Cardinal sins for a hundred. Um. Melania Trump destroyed this garden. Oh, dang it. Um, the White House garden. Sorry. What is the Rose Garden? What is your third question, Steph? Uh, okay. Uh, coffee big break for 100. 
This singer shares her last name with a coffee size. Ariana Grande. Who is? Thank goodness. It's Jeopardy. Say who is Ariana Grande. Oh, sorry. Who is Ariana Grande? Correct. One less, one less problem. (laughs) What's your next question, Steph? Uh, Cardinals for 200. Demi Moore starred in this 1995 movie based off the Nathaniel Hawthorne novel of the same name. G.I. Jane? I'm sorry. That is the Scarlet Letter. God damn it. Stupid book, stupid. What's uh, your next question, Steph? <laughs> Let me um, name that dude for 200. Unlike when dancing, your hands don't go on this part of the violin. The butt? The waist. Damn it. <laughs> I was so close. We're about halfway there, Steph. We can power through. Okay, What's your coffee. next one? Coffee big break for 200. What the frack? This character is an ace pilot played by Katie Sakiov. Oh, God damn it. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to do like cover and keep a theme like Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, you uh, think I'd be smarter. But, um, you got this. Let me know, um, listeners, how you did on this whole Jeopardy. You had uh, been better than me. Okay. What's your answer to this one, Steph? Do you got it or? No. Starbuck. Seriously? Okay. Yeah, Starbucks is the character she plays. Uh, so right now you have Name That Tune for 100, and then you have uh, 300 for Coffee, Big Break, and Cardinal Sins, and 400 for everything else. For all three. Let's go with Name That Tune for 100. Hopefully I can grab those. You could wrap a present with this tool used to play the violin. Oh, a bow. What is a bow? There you go. Another 100 points. Thank goodness. 200. All right. Dying completely. Okay, let's go with Cardinal Sins 300. This ocean phenomena uh, is caused by algae bloom. I feel like I used to know what this was called, and I lost. All right, I'm going to call that a pass. Yeah. What is Red Tide? Okay, Uh, Coffee Big Break. For 300? Uh, Rowan Atkinson knows all about playing this character, whether on holiday or not. Mr. Bean? What is Mr. B? Who is Mr. B? Yes. Correct. Yay! Yo, getting on there. Now you have 400 in each category left. God damn it. Okay, let's go with Cardinal Sins for 400. This superhero is a favorite of fictional child Timmy Turner in The Fairly Odd Parents. Probably should have paid attention. <laughs> Ed Hensley. Who is the Crimson Chin? Yeah, I was way off. Okay, name that tune for 400. Um,. Curiosity never killed this type of violin string. A C string? Is that your final answer? Yeah. What is cat gut? Jesus Christ, I really need to learn how to play the violin. Okay, I guess only thing I have left is coffee big break for 400. You don't have to go to the third rock from the sun to get a cup of this actor. Uh, I'm a menace, I think. Um, can't remember. It wasn't Brooke Shields in that? I, I don't know. Your final answer? Yeah. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the Joe is in parentheses because coffee. Uh, 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 I'm not smart enough to play this game, clearly. It's late. Um, so <laughs> Coffee Big Break was coffee and like famous people. Name that tune was parts of a violin. And Cardinal Sins was things with red in the name. <laughs> it was actually pretty good. I feel like if I was just smarter in general. That would have played out better. Maybe I'll 
make that a little less me next time we uh, try that out. But uh, now we're on to episodes five and six of Comrade Akiva. Um, and I think we're almost through. We got this. Okay. Um, episode five of Comrade Akiva. Replay. Humans are all magic. Um, Wataru is trying to hold a concert, uh, but everyone is terrible and his nerves get too bad to play. Um, he gets sad. He'll always be the ghost boy. He decides that Nago can help. Uh, Nago is hunting Kiva through Megumi and stops a stalker without noticing he's a fan guy. Um, they fight and it transitions to the 80s uh, with Otoya harassing Yuri over a payphone. Um, Wataru asks Nago to teach him how to be more masculine slash less nervous. Nago makes him yell in public and do a case. Uh, then Otoya comes to Yuri's work at the 80s and get tossed out by Jiro, who then does a coffee gear, a coffee dare, because 800 yen is too much for a blend. He has great facial expressions as he uh, tries the coffee and says it's good and pays for his coffee. Um, Lotaro is very gullible as he's in the same bush as the stalker who just tells him that he's also on guard too. And he looks really suspicious when he starts reading out her proportions uh, for Megumi, but then is like impressed by how smart he is. Uh, they are both swimming, including Yuri in 1986, who thinks she's being watched. Um, as she's modeling, Wataru tries to steal her phone because gets caught. Um, and as Nago and Megumi fight, uh, Nago says that Wataru was in the right as uh, he goes home and has a, a bath and, and is sad that he has no will of his own. Uh, Megumi thinks about her mom. Um, and then we also see that in the 80s, Otoya went to the gym uh, to fight Jiro because he hates engagement and being ridiculed by other men. And then um, Yuri is very much over them fighting and leaves um, as the chief also walks through them fighting. And then um, both women are attacked with Megumi signing autograph for these dagger attacks her. Um, and yeah. And then Nago is fighting, or um, Kiva is fighting that finger where Nago interrupts. And the girls both get kidnapped. So yeah. Um, this is a weird little episode, but tension, I guess, is being introduced between the uh, two forces in Katara's uh, life. We're seeing more characters in the 80s. Uh, it pairs a little bit stronger w- with the other episodes. So Yeah, it just it kind of felt weird how aggressive this episode was compared to the other ones. Um, because it it kind of felt like in this episode it pushed everything to the forefront in a way that the other episodes hadn't. So it it kind of added interesting dynamic to how things had been played up to this point. Yeah. I think too that um this firmly adds Nago to the kind of like trifoil situation you get with Wataru and like Otoya where it's like, okay, he's a asshole too. He's like a toughly masculine person. He's somebody who doesn't like understand people around him or like doesn't understand people and is like very negative for that, you know? Right. It kind of feels like he has to play this foil role 
whether it feels entirely correct or not, it it's almost like an obligation at this point. Oh, and it's definitely more with him, but he's definitely like he's not important. <laughs> <laughs> His plot is very much how could I be a dick? Which you know what? I'm glad he's living his truth. Uh, but no, I'm uh, actually wrong there. Uh, episode five is called Duet Stalker Panning. Episode six, replay humans are all on music. But yeah, um, Naga realizes that Megumi was attacked by a like Fangire, uh, which is weird. And Mrs. Kiva, um, Wataru then shows up and tries to say that he's Kiva, uh, which gets shot down by Naga. Was like, stop making things up. Uh, Latoya is asked to save Yuri in the 80s and join the wonderful Blue Sky organization. Uh, and he says, yeah, if I can relentlessly hit on her, sure. Uh, and then we see the two of them in, uh, meet their kidnappers um, with Megumi finding it's the same spider guy who kidnapped her mom. Um, and then uh, we get just kind of um, Jira helping Toya and uh, Wataru beating the stalker. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of tension between Jiro and like Toya. Um, I wrote down they start a ship. I'm not sure what. Oh, yeah. I meant there. Um, the spider dude also likes feet. Right. Um, eight feeted legs. Uh, but uh, that's not right. But and then uh, Wataru tries to uh, take Megumi's place. Um, and Otoya tries to attack. They both fail. Uh, we do get um, Otoya and Yuri having their first full conversation as Yuri uses her feathered necklace which is then found after a mural of all the Starker photos of, 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 of like Yuri show up for Megumi 2008. She finds that necklace and that like an also like cut out. Yeah. Um, and then uh, from there, um, Wataru learns about people's music and does the Asamu thing to track down Megumi. <laughs> and yeah, um, then Jiro shows off that uh, he's some kind of monster too and helps out. And then um, you see Kiva get a new uh, creature from the Black Lagoon theme, like form called Basha form. And then in the end, Wataru plays violin for uh, Just Megumi. And yeah, um, I like the way the economy of this arc works. A lot of like locations repeat in Kamen Rider. And I think them repeating because there's two timelines and, and the same thing's happening is really cool and almost like adds to like makes it seem less like a budgetary constraint yeah i have to agree with you especially because like knowing this show there are a lot of areas where they could have cut corners if they wanted to but they left a lot of storylines intact that felt very important and that was a cool thing to get to experience yeah this is a, a like great like a lark and um there's one more arc um but right before that like i do want to say uh our last bit of our supplement is looking at news and movies and music from Nate. i'm gonna cut this down a little bit uh but basically um in 2008 on february 24th fidel castro retires as president of cuba uh and on march 13th gold prices hit thousand dollars per ounce for the first time uh for movies there are a lot more top movies uh, at that point. Um, in the U.S., the top movie of the week, uh, for those 
various weeks are National Treasure Book of Secrets, The Bucket List, Cloverfield, Meet the Spartans, Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus, Best of Both Worlds Concert. Jump on that. Jumper. (laughs) Fool's Gold. I didn't do that on purpose, guys. Vantage Point, Semi-Pro, 10,000 BC, and Horton Hears the Who. Uh, And then in Japan, the top movies of each week were I Am Legend, Earth, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Flowers in the Shadows, I Change the World, The Golden Compass, Doramon, Nobita and the Green Giant Legend, and Enchanted. So more than half movies from the year or two before the US. Uh, and music. Um, the uh, top songs were Low by Flowrider featuring T-Pain and Love in This Club by Usher. <laughs> to let you know how music was doing to his name. Uh, Terrible, apparently. Terrible. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just damn. Uh, and yeah, that's an eight. Um, the MTV Awards for Japan to this date are fucking wild. It's half like uh, Justin Timberlake and half like Japanese acts. Like there's stuff like the um, best pop video was Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne. Oh, God. Yeah, it's a whole. That wasn't yeah. even a good video in the US. It wasn't. Uh, the best um, award for uh, MTV vi- Video Vanguard was Mariah Carey, Touch My Body. So there's a lot going on at this point. I'm not a fan of American music at this point. It's the top American music in Japan in 2008. It's going to be cursed. It could not be. Japan, you have better music. Listen to that. Just don't listen to our shit ever. Now we're getting right down to the wire, but um, our last two episodes are so it's seven to come writer Kiva him three star full course of darkness and soul dragon castle anger. So uh, episode seven starts with uh, Megumi leaving the hospital when Nago shows up to say that she should stay and leaves her flowers. Uh, Wataru just does whatever Nago says as a count Fangire holds a stained class multicolor rose as his butler Fangire dies of old age. He then decides to revive them all. Um, in the 80s, there are regulars at the cafe missing. Um, in the modern day, it is people going to an upscale restaurant. Um, Latoya tries to join the Blue Sky group, but Yuri wants Jiro. Um, and then, yeah, um, Gumi invites uh, Wataru to dinner, but Shizuka does not like it. Um, and he just like continues to not uh understand what a garbage boy Nago is. Hatoya does magic tricks to make Yuri laugh, and Nago just shows up in the place of Wataru. It's just a complete asshole. Like, does not let Megumi know there's a like puzzle, so she like ruins her shoes. Uh, they eat, and then he acts super surprised that she enjoys the food. Also, Watoru works there. <laughs> wow. And then, yeah. So much help. Uh, Wataru asks Nago about Kiva. And he just says, listen to me, Kiva is evil. Um, and then the chef eats the other guests um, and Kiva fights him, but Nago attacks. Uh, and that makes her very anxious, so he runs away. Uh, and then in the 80s, 
Jiro is the one that is eating customers because they taste great from other coffee. And just to go back to back, uh, episode eight, um, Latoya gets a lot of hate for not drinking coffee and getting the name of the org wrong. Um, Yuri keeps tailing Jiro, um, and he almost gets sniped, but no one noticed. Uh, Nago's reaction to a corruption scandal drove his father to death. Yuri gets hit on, and it's really not treated like a big deal at all when this dude just like starts like asking for her number as Jiro kills somebody nearby. And um, Kotoya decides to drink a ton of coffee to attract the killer. And then, yeah, uh, we meet the second uh, Harms monster, Raymond, who is a fancy schoolboy who is uh, stopped and talked to by Jiro. Uh, and then uh, Wataru takes the sauce from the restaurant home to make a like varnish, but is found by Megumi. And then later on, the chef who says, so it was you who stole my secret sauce. Uh, there's a great bit where his hat gets caught in the doorframe and he keeps walking and then he fires Wataru. And of course, that leads to uh, Wataru uh, dressing up to go sh- Shizuka to the place. Uh, and then there's a fun insert theme and a big mecha fight. Uh, but Wataru wins the day. In the 80s, we find out that uh, Jiro wants Yuri and the feelings mutual. Uh, there's some line about like thieves in love and maybe I might be a woman if only thieves and women in love follow men. I'm not a thief. And there's tension there. And yeah, that's where we leave off. Uh, long episode, I know. A lot going on. And yeah, um, slight gap to everyone. Uh, we had a little power issue. It's alright, but we're here to give our final thoughts on the episodes. Uh, we ran kind of long, because uh, next time, uh, the plan will be not to have a little bit of a gap between watching <laughs> these episodes. Maybe we'll like slightly more like engaged there it's like oh man like i like first watched these like a month ago yeah we'll be normal persons for once but no we were all along either way but no um what were your thoughts on these uh last two episodes Steph, with the whole like chef arc and everything i'm gonna say not just with these two episodes but just with the series in general so far i absolutely love the fact that we went from two kind of relaxing common Rider series to this one that kind of like punches you in the face with this very unique storyline and costume style and just everything about it is very like campy very fun very engaging i love it very much so far and i'm so excited to see where this series goes so i Definitely am enjoying it so far and cannot wait to engage with not only you, but our audience and seeing what comes next. Yeah, no, like it's always interesting to look at something and to look back at something. I feel there's so much more going on to the show than when I watched it, like when it first came out like years ago. Uh, But yeah, uh, there's a lot to say. And I think um, we're going to hit that like next time, too. But what I want to say right now is um, that we have a couple things that we like to hit on our way out. Important milestones, important things to talk about. So most importantly, Steph, our first of our three important things is who are our favorite characters? We get three each. Oh. Who is your first? It does not, ha- not have to be your th- third favorite or your first favorite. It can be whatever order. But who is 
your first of your three favorite characters from the show. I actually wrote these down in order. Uh, first one is Wataro. He's number one uh, or number three? Oh, sorry. Number one. Number uh, one. Yep. So far. Now, we still have a while to go. So far. Uh, second is Anagu. Okay. And third is Megomi. And once again, these are not in, like, order of importance. These are just characters that I was going off of a checklist while I was watching them, thinking, oh, yeah, I'd love to see more screen time from them. Ooh. I'm going to go similar with Tara's in my top three. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Yuri's in my top three. Yuri. Understandable. Uh, Probably would yeah. be on my list next week, honestly. Mm-hmm. And that last one's a little rough. Um, I'm going to say Kivat is in my top three. I understand that also. Yeah, Kivat's strong. Could have been Jiro there. Uh, but it is a like tough glut at the top right here. Oh, yeah. I have to ask, uh, what was your favorite monster design, suit, or effect? I'm going to have to go with, and I I don't know the name of this, so you're going to have to give me an assist here. Very first monster we see in the series that came out of the stained glass window. And just because I had never in my life imagined a stained glass window monster before. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that, of course, it would be a common Rider series that introduced me to this thing that I never knew existed, but now I think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah, the spider fang guy. Yeah. It's a great design. Yes. And just, I, I wasn't expecting it. Obviously, we see a lot of, like, really fantastical things in these series, and I always enjoy them, but that was something that was not within the realm of my imagination before. So the fact that I got to see that on screen in the very first episode, I was just like, hell yeah, this is a series for me. I like a lot of the Kiva stuff. I like Kiva's forms. I like Kiva's bike. I'll probably say Kiva... Guru form, that blue form with that sword in the mouth is like my favorite so far. I I think that I like everything that Kiva does so far just because like the character himself is such an anti-hero and I just enjoy that concept to hell and back. I I think it's amazing. Oh yeah. Um, What's the best outfit we've seen of this show so far? There's a lot of bangers in that 80s. Also that, that 2008 also struggling in its own way. Oh, yeah, I know. It, and that's hard because I was there for both of those fashion trends. Um, I'm going to say a uh, violin player standing in front of the fountain. Um, she was wearing. Yes. The, um, like the wedding dress. Yes. And it but it it looked like something that like if you didn't see it up close could almost look like it was too much but if you knew what she was wearing you were just like oh that's perfect for exactly what she's doing right now so there was just something about that whole scene that was so beautiful but her outfit really like tied the mood together so yeah that was probably my favorite one yeah that's hard um i do have to say here's where jiro's gonna get his stuff for me jiro had that great outfit inside a castle where he's a butler. He also has this cool, I'm an 80s of leather wolf man outfit. Yeah, but that's what makes him such a great actor. Like he pulls off each look so functionally well that you like if you didn't know, you could almost think that they were two different actors. Yeah, of I'm glad to see him back to back. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, 
Um, yeah. And that is our first look at Kamarada Kiva. So I guess what I got to say, Steph, is uh, when you're talking about uh, Tukasatsu, where can people find you? Um, probably singing some 80s karaoke hits in a dive bar somewhere. Um, aside from that, uh, Jackie and I are really working hard to get published. Uh, but when we do, we will be the Arcade Militia podcast and uh, the arcademilitia.com. We just much because of the same uh, mental health issues I mentioned before with um, not being able to appear on this podcast meant that I couldn't also work on my other project. So we're getting there. It'll be some time, but once we do, I would sure appreciate uh, any kind of attention you guys would pay to us. So that's me. Yeah, we'll make sure that it's uh, at the forefront like here too when it happens. But for right now, you can find me uh, on Twitter.com at James Forge. Find the podcast uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Come Ride With Me. You can go to CommonRideWithMe.com for purposes and articles. Go to CommonRideWithMe.com slash episodes to find each episode with links out to various different services. There's CommonRideWithMe.com slash merch for all of our merch with the proceeds there. Entirely going to the Trevor Project. There is a podcast at CommonRideWithMe.com if you want to send in questions or let us know uh, what you think about how you did on that Jeopardy. Uh, if you have any ideas or for vaguely themed th- questions that aren't me circling Joe, Siv Gordon Levitt, because Cup of Joe, uh, that might also help. Uh, and then um, there is um, on Apple Podcasts, we love five star reviews. We're getting a little close to our uh, next giveaway. So, yeah. Can I actually give an additional plug to our merch here? Just for a sec yeah when um oh gosh right when i first joined the podcast was right when common writer or come i'm sorry common ride with me was doing their um halloween episode a year or two ago whatever it was anyway they were doing a um special edition logo that I just happened to go onto the website and get a blanket made out of into this day. I still fight my daughter for it whenever the weather starts to get cold because she tries consistently to steal this blanket from me and it's still my favorite. Um, so just to say that if you ever do have like the thought that maybe you should give the merch a try, definitely do it. I have a hoodie and a lap blanket that I still use regularly, pretty top notch quality. So, you know, go ahead and give it a try. Plus know that what you're sending us goes to a great cause. Yeah. And, um, I made the choice early on that. I didn't want to super have to worry about uh, the percentages on doing stuff at different places. So I went someplace that was easy, very quick for people and like had lots of like options, but also uh, going out to the Trevor project is in my mind better than like uh, what it would go from like uh, just uh, the couple hundred dollars. Like, you know? Oh yeah. Hell yeah. I, I feel like anytime you give to a place like that with good intent. I mean, all you can do is hope for the best. Yeah. And with that, uh, I'm not sure if we have anything else, but um, can we learn anything? Um, That's okay if we did learn anything. 
I feel like we learned a lot of things, but, you know, those things were so juxtaposed between, like, 1988 and 2008 that it's kind of hard to figure out where the line is. Yeah. What's the line between 2008 and 1986? I mean, besides the mullets. Yeah. I don't know. You guys write us some emails and tell us what that line is, and we'll uh, we'll figure it out next episode. I don't know about you, but that sounds like 22 years. Yeah, I, I haven't felt like 22 in like four years, so yeah. I haven't felt like I was 22 since uh, the... Since you were 10? Yes, yeah, I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I was drinking, I was doing lots of graduate work it was great you were selling heroin it was a hell of a time yeah just fucking like get this cootie shot guys <laughs> <laughs>